Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 14, The Course of Empire. I'm back from Japan, in one piece, only moderately jet-lagged, and excited to be doing the show again. This week, we're going to be discussing the foreign policy of Japan from 1895 to 1940, and we'll also be discussing the course of Japanese imperialism, particularly as it relates to China. Now, since we're getting into events that are potentially within the scope of living memory for some, and which remain extremely controversial for many, before we go any further, I do just want to say two things. First, for the episodes leading up to the Second World War, which include this week's, next week's, and the one after that, I'm going to be focusing on explaining the motivations and rationale behind the actions taken by the Japanese leadership, at least as best as we understand them. I'm not going to be discussing anything related to the morality of imperialism or of the Second World War. If there's interest, I'd be willing to cover those topics at a later date, but it's outside the scope of what I'm trying to do with the outline episodes. Second, as a corollary to this, just because I'm relating the rationale of the Japanese leadership to you does not mean that I in any way endorse or condone that line of thinking. For the record, I'm against any form of imperialism, including that of Imperial Japan. Now that I've covered my own butt in such a thorough fashion, let's get started. After the Sino-Japanese War and Russian intervention, which you'll remember from a few weeks ago forced the Japanese to return some of the territory they'd acquired, the next obvious foe facing Japan was Russia. Russia had been expanding its sphere of influence in Manchuria, which is the area of China that's directly north of Korea, and had even begun pressing its influence in Korea proper. The Russians allied with an anti-Japanese queen of the Korean royal family, who was then assassinated by Japanese agents, though of course they denied responsibility for the whole thing. The situation was made even more tense by the Boxer Rebellion in 1900. For those of you who don't know, the Boxer Rebellion was an anti-Western rebellion in China. The rebellion is called the Boxer Rebellion because the sect which led it practiced calisthenics and martial arts, reminding the Westerners who observed them of European and American athletes. Japan, along with seven other foreign powers, intervened in China to put down the rebellion and protect diplomats who had been cornered in the foreign section of Beijing. The Russians were part of the intervention and used the excuse of the Boxer Rebellion to remove massive numbers of Chinese troops from Manchuria and further solidify their hold over the area. This further enraged the Japanese government, but they were afraid of being diplomatically isolated in any conflict against Russia, just like they had been after the Sino-Japanese War. After all, it would not be very difficult for the Russians to reach out to their allies and request their help against Japan. In particular, France was a close ally of Russia and was reliant on the Russians in case of any future war with Germany. As a result, the French had very good reason to try and keep the Russians happy. The French, it seemed, would be more than willing to throw Japan under the bus in order to keep the Russians on their side. Fortunately, at this point, the most powerful state in the world also had an interest in checking Russia. The United Kingdom had been sparring with the Russian Empire over the Middle East for some time, and saw an alliance with Japan as a natural counterpart to its increasingly close relationship with the United States. 
a Japanese alliance could secure British interests in the Pacific. The Japanese, for their part, were thrilled at the idea of working with the UK, and this position of mutual advantage gave birth to the Anglo-Japanese alliance of 1902. Under the terms of the alliance, one partner would intervene if the other requested it after an attack by multiple great powers. Thus, if France intervened in a war between Russia and Japan, the British, in turn, can intervene against France. This would certainly prevent the French from involving themselves in any conflict, since they were also trying to court the British as part of an anti-German alliance. Having thus secured themselves through diplomacy, the Japanese began making preparations for war with Russia. Negotiations between the two powers to defuse tensions were ongoing, but by 1904 they had more or less broken down. The Japanese government was increasingly determined on war, and for his part, Tsar Nicholas II, against the will of his advisors, advocated for war as a method to revive Russian patriotism. As a side note, the final Japanese decision for war was made in part as a result of their dealings with an American banker named Jacob Schiff. Schiff was a Russian Jew living in the United States who despised the Russian government because of their policy of encouraging anti-Jewish riots, called pogroms. Schiff offered the Japanese a series of interest-free loans to the tune of $200 million in 1904 currency. Historical currency conversions are always tricky, but as near as I can tell, that would place the value of Schiff's loans in 2013 dollars at around $5.3 billion. The loan made Schiff, and Jews in general by extension, extremely popular with the Japanese leadership which will have some interesting consequences down the road during World War II, which will probably be discussed in another episode. Meanwhile, Schiff's $200 million were used to complete the final preparations for war. Japanese planners felt that superior Russian resources, combined with the necessity of driving the Russians out of Manchuria rather than waiting for them to attack Korea, meant that Japan would have to strike first and strike hard. In other words, an overwhelming surprise attack was the best way forward. On February 8, 1904, they launched that attack, sending the Imperial Japanese Navy in a surprise attack on the Russian naval base of Port Arthur in Manchuria. The Russian fleet was forced back into the bay and trapped there, and Japanese troops began landing in Korea in droves in order to attack Manchuria. Incidentally, the declaration of war by Japan was also delivered on the 8th. The surprise attack thus relied on the pretext that it was technically legal as war had already been declared. There was a margin of about a few hours between the official declaration of war and the launching of the attack, thus ensuring that Russian diplomats would have no time to warn the Navy to be on guard. This strategy proved enormously successful and provided the template for the attack on Pearl Harbor, some 37 years later. The story of the Russo-Japanese War has two parts. The Army's war was essentially inconclusive. The Japanese won most of the battles and did succeed in pushing the Russians back, but they were never able to decisively beat the Russians. Every time the Japanese began to win a battle, the Russians would simply run away in order to avoid complete defeat. Casualties on both sides were also extremely high. Both the Russians and the Japanese employed the same weapons that later resulted in the massive carnage of World War I. Machine guns and trench warfare provided a harrowing foreshadowing of what was to come in August of 1914, 
a foreshadowing that, by the way, observers from other powers completely ignored. In the end, the Imperial Japanese Army suffered terrible losses for little real result. In fact, it's often pointed out by Japanese historians that Japan lost more men in the first battle of the Russo-Japanese War than it did in the entirety of its war against China ten years before. The Imperial Navy, however, fared much better. Though they had only cornered the Russian fleet and not destroyed it, the Imperial Japanese Navy did, by virtue of its opening surprise attack, manage to command the sea. The Russians sent their European fleet to Asia in response, but the British refused transit through the Suez Canal to them, so the Russians were forced to sail around the entirety of Africa. This meant that the Japanese had an entire year to prepare for the arrival of the Russian fleet. When the Russians finally did arrive, they ran right into a trap laid for them by Admiral Togo Heihachiro, who, incidentally, joined the Navy after he saw his hometown of Kagoshima burned to the ground by the British in 1863, as we discussed in the episode on the Major Restoration. Togo's fleet ambushed and destroyed the Russians in May of 1905, and it was this defeat that forced the Russians to the negotiating table. The Treaty of Portsmouth, which ended the Russo-Japanese War, was negotiated by American President Teddy Roosevelt, who offered to act as an intermediary because of his extreme fondness for Japan and the Japanese. In fact, Roosevelt was actually a practitioner of judo, and the Japanese government sent him a personal instructor from Tokyo as a way of cultivating a friendship between the U.S. and Japan. The peace gave Japan control of the territory it had lost after the Sino-Japanese War, and added Manchuria to its sphere of influence, though the territories technically remained Chinese. Japan also gained partial control of the island of Sakhalin, north of Hokkaido, as well as the Kuril Islands. Defeat in the war sparked an attempted revolution back in Russia, which further weakened the Tsarist regime. The 1905 revolution, by the way, was also the first political appearance of Vladimir Lenin as an anti-government agitator in Russia. The Russo-Japanese War confirmed Japan as one of the world's major powers. But the war also had its downside. Namely, at this point, the interests of the army and the navy began to diverge very sharply. The navy, for its part, had ended the threat of Russian fleets in the Pacific, and it began to look for new threats to its dominance of the seas. In particular, the large American presence on the Philippines seemed to convey American plans to extend power further into Asia, which would naturally threaten Japan's position there. The army, however, remained focused on Russia as the primary threat, and was convinced of the likelihood of another war against the Russians. In most systems of government, these kind of differences would be reconciled by a commander-in-chief who ran both branches and could mediate between them. For example, in the American system, that would be the U.S. president. However, the Japanese military, neither the army nor the navy, was not subordinate to the prime minister. In fact, the army and navy were actually responsible for appointing the ministers who were supposed to oversee them, namely the army and navy ministers. Meaning that by refusing to appoint someone, they could actually bring down a government and eject a prime minister from office. In theory, the emperor could give orders to both branches, but in practice, his role was largely symbolic, and he essentially rubber-stamped decisions that were handed to him. After the Meiji Emperor died in 1912, his successor Emperor Taisho was also mentally incompetent, 
removing even that nominal check from the army and navy. There's actually a great story about Taisho. He once started giving a speech in the Diet, and then suddenly stopped, rolled up his notes, and started peering through them like a spyglass at all the Diet members, until some of his servants arrived to gently hush him away from the podium. This from the only man with the power and authority to keep the military under control. The outbreak of World War I in August of 1914 briefly reunited both the army and the navy in their determination to seize upon the justification of the Anglo-Japanese alliance to gain control of German colonies in Asia. However, after this brief period of unity, the leadership of the military began to diverge even further. In particular, the army leadership was split down the middle in its attempt to interpret the perceived lessons of the First World War. Some officers saw the First World War as demonstrating a fundamental change in the nature of warfare. War was now an issue of economics, and the state that could sustain its economy longest in the face of an ongoing war would be the state that would win. They felt that Japan had to reorganize its economy and gain access to more natural resources in order to be independent enough to defend its territory against any comer for as long as they possibly could. Other officers saw the key to success as social mobilization. They felt that the Japanese population had to be totally indoctrinated to prepare them to make sacrifices in the name of the government. The first of these groups became known as the Control Faction because of their desire for a controlled economy. The second became known as the Imperial Way Faction, a name they received because of their focus on reverence for the Emperor. The army leadership would never really reconcile the differences between these two sides. As a result, all of Japan's future war plans became a strange mishmash of these two competing ideas. World War I also saw a worsening of relations between Japan and China. In 1911, China's Qing Dynasty collapsed as a result of a coup led by General Yuan Shikai, but infighting continued to dominate the country. After Yuan died in 1917, the country began to fall into chaos. Various generals began to carve off their own little mini-states, and the authority of the central government of the new Chinese Republic began to collapse. Some of the more ruthlessly inclined among the Japanese leadership wanted to seize the opportunity to keep China fragmented and ensure Japanese domination of the Pacific. They began to back various warlords in an attempt to keep the country fragmented. This policy of backing the various warlords against one another became the semi-official stance of the Japanese government. The most favored of these warlords was Zhang Zuolin, who controlled the area of Manchuria, and worked very closely with Japanese officials there. The Japanese also began to pressure the central government of the Republic of China for concessions, thinking that they could browbeat the Chinese in this moment of weakness. They asked for a variety of things, economic rights, territory, the usual, and were generally successful, but in the process they created a lot of anti-Japanese feeling among the burgeoning Chinese middle class. In the mid-twenties, this policy of kicking the Chinese while they were down began to come back to bite them. A new Chinese government, led by General Jiang Jieshi, best known in the West as Chiang Kai-shek, began to reunify the country. Though Chiang never fully crushed the warlords, 
he did make a great deal of progress, particularly after he agreed to a mediated peace with the Chinese communists. Chiang's government was strong enough that it could now put up some opposition to the Japanese, and many leaders in this new government despised the Japanese for what they saw, not incorrectly, as Japanese opportunism at a moment of Chinese weakness. Smelling which way the wind was blowing, in the late 20s, Zhang Zuolin began to drift away from the Japanese and began making overtures towards Chiang Kai-shek with the goal of restoring Chinese unity. The official Japanese response to this threat to their control over Manchuria was very confused. No real progress was made in terms of mollifying Zhang and keeping control over Manchuria, or in terms of reconciling with the nationalists. So, a group of extremist military officers took matters into their own hands. In 1928, a group of extremist officers led by one Lieutenant Komoto Daisaku assassinated Zhang Zuolin by planting a bomb in his private rail car, and then attempted to convince the government to allow them to go in and stabilize Manchuria with a Japanese military presence. Their attempt failed as the new emperor Showa best known in the West as Hirohito, he'd been crowned two years earlier, intervened to prevent the invasion and forced the Prime Minister to resign, after the Prime Minister proved unwilling to prosecute anyone for the bombing. That the perpetrator of the bombing was a lieutenant in the army named Komoto Daisaku was well known, but many in the government were convinced by zealous army officials not to intervene, particularly since the army threatened to bring down the government by withdrawing its ministers, enforcing the assembly of a new cabinet. As a result, Zhang Zuolin's son Shui Liang stepped into his father's place. Rather unsurprisingly, he was not very fond of the Japanese and moved even closer to Chiang Kai-shek's sphere of influence. Being terribly unoriginal, extremists in the army decided to try and deal with him in much the same way. In July of 1931, they yet again set off bombs in Manchuria. Rather than ask for government permission to go in and stabilize the area, this time the officers simply launched an invasion in response to their own bombings without receiving word from Tokyo either way. When some ministers of the government criticized this move by the army, radicals in the military threatened a full-scale coup against the civilian government. When Prime Minister Inukai Tsuyoshi, with the backing of some more moderate military officers, tried to rein the military in, he was assassinated by radical army officers. At this point, the military had essentially seized control of Japanese foreign policy. However, infighting between the army and navy, and between factions in the army, continued. The invasion of Manchuria culminated in the creation of a Japanese client state called Manchukuo. The justification for this client state was that the population of Manchuria was ethnically distinct from the rest of China and thus that the Japanese were merely assisting the Manchurians in the establishment of their own state. It's worth noting at this juncture that the growth of the Japanese empire was the result of what can essentially be described as a domino effect. In order to protect Japan, the Japanese invaded and seized control of Korea. In order to protect Korea, they invaded and seized control of Manchuria. In a few years, they will invade China in order to protect Manchuria. Here we can see the sort of addictive nature of imperialism. The more you have, the more you need to hang on to what you already have. 
The rest of the world did not respond well to Japanese aggression in China. The League of Nations, which was the predecessor to the modern UN, condemned the invasion of Manchuria, and as a result Japan withdrew from the League in 1933. To recap then, what we have now is a government run by the military, and a military with no one actually in charge, since it was split between the Control Faction, the Imperial Way Faction, and the Navy. It is important, however, not to overemphasize the idea of military domination. While the military was shutting down vocal opposition, and would continue to do so up to the end of World War II, it's not like there was a sizable and vocal opposition to begin with. It's worth noting that the invasion of Manchuria happened two years after the start of the Great Depression, and Japan, since its economy was based primarily on exports, was hit extremely hard by the Depression. An invasion of Manchuria was presented to the public as a solution to the ailments of the Global Depression. Manchuria could be both a market for Japanese goods, and a source of natural resources to revive the economy. Most Japanese people responded very well to this image. To put it another way, generally speaking, people supported the military until the military stopped winning. Though of course it's also important to note that the military did suppress negative reports, particularly as they related to atrocities carried out against civilians. The seizure of Manchuria yet again worsened relations with China. Tensions between the two sides became extremely fraught, and things came to a head in June of 1937. In order to protect its new holdings in Manchuria, Japan had pushed its unofficial influence all the way to the outskirts of Beijing. In June of 1937, a Japanese soldier near Beijing went missing for a few hours, and his superiors demanded the right to send armed troops to look for him. The local Chinese commander made a counteroffer that the Chinese would dispatch troops to look for the soldier, with Japanese observers accompanying them, which was rejected by the Japanese military. Instead, the Japanese commander on the scene attacked the Chinese, and continued to do so even after he received an order to cease the attack and withdraw. The Japanese central government, meanwhile, determined that since it could not restrain its own commanders, its best bet for avoiding an all-out war was an attempt to use this event to intimidate the Chinese. To that end, Prime Minister Konoe Fumimaro issued an extremely belligerent statement threatening an invasion of China unless Chiang's government apologized for this, quote, insult to the Japanese people. Konoe and his supporters badly misread the situation. The Chinese response was not fear, but outrage. Chiang Kai-shek ordered attacks against Japanese positions, most notably the Japanese-held territory in Shanghai. The Japanese responded with a massive invasion, which seized control of Shanghai and then moved on the Chinese capital of Nanjing. The fall of Nanjing to Japanese forces in December of 1937 resulted in the month-long sack of that city, an event referred to as either the Rape of Nanjing or the Nanjing Massacre. We're not really sure how many people died in the massacre, since for obvious reasons the Japanese did not keep very good records of it, but the number is estimated to be somewhere between 200,000 and 300,000 people. The initial response to the invasion in Japan was overwhelmingly positive, particularly since atrocities like the Nanjing Massacre were suppressed in the press, and it seemed that Japan would win the war quite handily. 
However, the Japanese army was vastly overconfident and blundered into a series of ambushes when it attempted to pursue the retreating Chinese armies. Rather than a quick and easy victory, the Japanese were forced into a long-fought slog from which they could not extricate themselves. China was too big to fully seize control of, but Japanese behavior made it unlikely that the Chinese would ever accept a negotiated peace. This resulted in a war that, by 1940, was going nowhere fast, and was quickly draining what goodwill the Japanese had left. This was particularly true of the United States, upon which Japan was now almost entirely dependent for raw materials to fuel its war machine. A nation at war uses more material to fuel its military than one at peace, and Japan simply didn't produce enough on its own to keep its military stocked, which meant it had to buy resources from foreign powers. American policy in China had always been to maintain peace in the interests of stability and trade, and the new mass media brought the horrors of the China War to the forefront in the U.S. in a way that resulted in American opinion turning rapidly against Japan. We'll discuss the results of that in two weeks, but next week we're going to turn to the social and cultural scene of Japan after the Russo-Japanese War. The week after that, we'll move on to the coming of war with the United States. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.